This is Nick Corey from Nightmare on Elm Street. I play Rod Lane. This is uh, Welcome to Alone in the Dark podcast. Beautiful. Good Everybody, you are listening to the Alone in the Dark podcast. Hey, hey what's up, everybody? You're never alone when Maddie and Mike are <laughs> screaming into your ear. <laughs> and we're back, and it's Matt. It has been a long time again, dude. We messed up, dude. Nah. The coronavirus. Yeah, I think it got us both, man. It slowed us down because uh, we were on a roll there for a while. But that's all right. We're back. Yeah, we'll get back on a roll. No, nah, we're back on a roll. I know we got plans for a roll for sure. So, uh, so we're back. But it's great to hear your voice again, Matt. Um, you as well, man. It's good to be uh, good to be back. And this is this is going to be a, a super fun episode that we've been talking about doing for a long time. Diving into Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, which is uh, and yes, it would have been uh, better had we done it last month when it was Pride Month. But uh, yes. anyway, yeah, Happy Pride to everyone out there. Uh, yes, hope you had a good month celebrating it. But um, but anyway, it's okay. It's in spirit, right, Maddie? We're in spirit of of Pride Month uh, after it's passed. <laughs> we have no other choice, do we? That's that's it we just we do what we can right matt we do what we can (laughs) but uh but yeah summertime matt it's uh it's been fun what's been going on what have you been doing what have you been watching what's what's happening oh man you know since quarantine's been i actually been watching a lot a lot of things that's awesome tell tell me about it a lot of different things too not just horror either um you know a bunch of different things but uh for in in the in the horror front uh, i did want to talk about the creep show uh, series, um, oh, Greg, Nicotero, Greg yes. Nicotero series, on Shutter, right? Yes, on Shutter. Yeah, it was also it. on. It was also on AMC. Oh, that's right. It was on AMC and Shutter, right? It's like sort of yeah, which is which is what I, I DVR'd it from AMC actually. Cool. What are your thoughts? And what happened was well, there were six episodes, and they were technically, and there was two uh, segments in each one, so technically you have twelve episodes. Awesome. And um, I really. You know, I, I've read so many things where people were bashing it, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, oh, it's underwhelming and people were really expecting a lot more. I, I mean, I didn't go in with a lot of expectation at all. And I was I was really pleasantly surprised. There's a couple of very strong – there's a couple of weaker ones too, but there's a couple of really strong episodes. Um, there's a Halloween one, but that's not definitely – not even you would think, but it's not even one of my favorites at all. So, really? Uh, yeah, it's okay. The one that's coupled with, with uh, that, that episode's called All Close Eve. The one with that, the man in the suitcase. Oh, that was that was a highlight for me. Awesome. Uh, first of all, David Bruckner. You know, David Bruckner did it. Um, he did a VHS, VHS segment, yep. VHS two, I think. He's a he's a really cool, uh, you know, horror director. But he, oh man, this this story was bizarre and funny and crazy. But it just funny. it was just a breath of fresh air. Yeah, it really was, man. It was had it so much going for it. It was, it was really good. It was just such a great story and so well directed and acted. It was, it was fantastic. I just had such fun with that. I didn't see any of it coming. Um, so if you get a chance to watch the man in the suitcase, that's a great little episode. That's awesome. Got to check that one out. Um, my, one of my other, f- uh, 
favorite ones was Skin Crawlers was really cool too. That's a that cool was, title. Oh God, it was wow. Yeah, it's a gross out one for sure, but oh, it, it, wow. was, it was it was it was very cool though. Roxanne, awesome. Roxanne Benjamin does that one. She's very, it's a very good segment. Um, so those are those are my two. I'd say top two. Oh, Bad Wolf Down is a good one where these guys are like kind of surrounded by Nazis on all sides, and um, there's a the only inhabitant. There's like this werewolf prisoner. That's it, it's really really cool. It's that's pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, remember, these are only like these are tight, like thirty minutes, like you know, twenty eight minutes or thirty minutes. So I love that. You know, yeah, that whole anthology kind of format. I guess it's, oh, I feels miss like it so much. It feels like an anthology film, right? Oh my god, ridiculous! It, it totally does. Speaking of, have you seen? Uh, I'm dying to see the scare tactics that, which I think is on Shutter as well, right? That is an anthology too. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I'm going to see that soon because I think both you and I are going to subscribe to Shudder to watch something else to prep for one of our fu- future episodes. But uh, but Scare Tactics was definitely one that I keep reading about. And I'm going to, as soon as we both sign up for Shudder, well, I think we should both watch that one. It'd be great. That sounds like, a, sounds like a good idea to me, man. Yeah, sounds awesome. Nice. Yeah, I also did. Uh, I also saw the uh, the house that dripped blood, which is like an old Hammer uh, film from like the early seventies. Oh, that came out yeah, of, from England. Like uh, I think it was what is it? Amicus, I think, made it. Uh, the same one that made like Asylum. Uh, really, really good. Another, uh, actually, another anthology. Now that we're talking about it, right, right. I think I I recognize that cover. Right, isn't the cover like the knife's on like the left or the right side, and it picture there's like, a, like a woman on the cover or something like that i don't know if there's i'm not sure what the cover is but it's yeah. christopher lee's in it yep. definitely uh it's it, it was it had some good stuff i, I enjoyed it that's cool that's kind of neat had, to jump back to something like that you know yeah it was cool like, you know it's on 2b or it's on one of those free uh streaming i found it and uh, i really enjoyed it i didn't i never saw it and like i said that amicus that early 70s stuff that was coming out of england um was really cool stuff that's awesome. The late Hammer and the and the you know like I said Asylum and a couple of the anthologies that were you know Tales from the Crypt, um, cool. the Vault of Horror they, that was all around the little after that but all great stuff man. That's awesome. Very cool. Good yeah, stuff. What about you, man? Uh, what about me? Well, I had to do. Uh, I know what you did last summer, of course, on July. Oh, 4th, I did too. Third. I've done it like three times. <laughs> yeah, I was bummed because I was going to have a party at my house. We were going to watch it in the backyard. And the way I've been watching movies, because I have like a movie screen and stuff, uh, and the way I've been watching it lately is by bringing my Apple TV outside and plugging it into my projector. But Mm. for some reason that night, my Wi-Fi did not work. So we didn't end up, we didn't get to watch the movie, which I was so bummed because people came over to watch it. And I had like set up, I don't know if you remember, Mikey was was the the fisherman killer for Halloween last year. So like I had like a, like a coat rack outside. I think I posted a photo of it and I had like the, the, uh, you know, his hat and the jacket and like his hook hand, you know, knife, like hanging from the coat rack with like a red light on it. It was really cool. Uh, Um, Yeah. Corona on tap. <laughs> yeah, Corona on tap, and uh, but yeah, we didn't get to watch it, so I had to watch it in Mike. bed. Yeah, I was so bummed. Oh, man. But honestly, I think I was the most bummed there. I think people just wanted to come and drink, so that they were they were happy either way. But um, folks, that's the very definition of anticlimax, right there. It is. It is. Um, but I was just in Lake George, New York, and I've always posted about this. But there's an awesome drive-in movie theater that we usually see uh, a like a, mo- a new movie up there, but with right coronavirus obviously they don't have access to anything new because there's nothing new out there um so i was worried because they they were 
on their website, it didn't say anything about them opening until about midweek while we were up there. I remember before you went, you're like, Matt, uh, you're like, it's been closed. They're not yeah. even, there's no, now you didn't even know if you're going to be able to go. Right. I was just like, it kept saying opening soon. I'm like, it's summer. Like what's going on? So about midweek, I checked the website and thank God I did because on the website, it says we're open, opening this Friday, which is like the last <sighs> night we're there. And wow. I was like, no way. So I start looking at the the lineup and immediately I'm like, oh my God. So they have two screens there. And what they do is they play like a movie back to back on each screen. So there's actually four movies in a night. Um, I've never stayed for the second movie just because it's so late. But uh, oh, so anyway, dude. on screen one, it was Goonies and Gremlins. And I was like, I was happy. I was like, that's awesome. Like, uh, dude, I'll be psyched to just watch Goonies. Sure. You know what I mean? But then I scroll down, and then I'm like, "Oh my god!" It, on screen two, screen two, it was uh, screen two. It was Jaws and Jurassic Park, and I'm like, "There you go!" Holy mackerel! So we went and saw Jaws. And, so basically, it was Steven Spielberg night, really, if you think about it. Well, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, it, he exactly he was a producer on Goonies and and Gremlins. Yeah, and he exactly. Jaws and it was uh it was legendary so uh we went and saw jaws oh uh we didn't stay for jurassic park just because like i said when when jaws ended it was like almost 11 p.m and i was just like oh god there's no way so um so we went home but to see jaws on the big screen at a drive-in like a classic drive-in that's been there since oh like 1958 god. um and then every once in a while i'd look at my rearview mirror and see you know on the other screen see goonies playing it was uh it was awesome it was so much fun um, and I took a photo of the sign that I know I posted on my personal Instagram uh, page, yes. but you recommended that I post it on our page. So I will, sure. I will do that, uh, either tonight or tomorrow. Uh, so people can sort of see that and check it out. But it was, it was pretty legendary. So that was pretty awesome. So, oh man, I'm so envious. Yeah. And, uh, speaking of, I know what you did last summer, our friend Kenny, who does the onset cinema onset cinema. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing one last, I know what you did last summer. And where's he, where's he doing it from this amazing idea? Well, he's doing it at the department store, which is, I think it's called Harold's department store. It's Harold's. Yeah. Yeah. But obviously in the movie, it's Shivers department store. Correct. Um, and he's done it there once before, but the reason why he's doing it, it's actually really sad is Harold's is going out of business. After, yeah. 117 years or something. Uh, they've been in business. Yeah. So sad. So sad. So many, you know, mom and pop shops and old businesses are closing because of this. And it looks identical, virus. man. Yeah. It's crazy. I know last time he, they let people go up and down the little, uh, pulley elevator thing and stuff and so i'm like so tempted to go because i took my son mikey to see it when they had it in the uh the theater you know where they had the the, the croaker queen yeah, festival, croaker yeah. queen festival and that was an amazing experience it was so much fun but anyway so shout out to kenny for putting on these great onset cinemas the, they're pretty awesome so uh, i wish him all the best with this one and uh you know if yeah uh, no no uh no news on the guest but i imagine he's gonna get somebody to go yeah, that would be that would be really cool. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Um, so anyway, so that's that. And then what else? We have to uh, talk about our Patreon, Maddie, because we have to give a shout out to our friends from the Horror Dads podcast, John yes. and Jamie. They both subscribe to our Patreon. So guys, thank you so much. You guys are thank awesome. You. Uh, amazing. And uh, they, what's their latest episode, Maddie, on the Horror Dads? Do you know? Well, I don't know if this is the latest one, but the uh, the one I listened to last, uh, I believe it was episode 11, is the Horror Family Trees, where they kind of pick 
uh, favorite like mom, dad, brother, sister, son, daughter, and like pet, I think. Uh, it's pretty cool. Very cool episode. Awesome. So yeah, people out there, go listen, go check out Horror Dads, a uh, great podcast. And uh, shout out to you guys. Thanks for being our Patreon subscribers. So You guys are the best. Thank you. Yeah. And then definitely check us out. Uh, Matt and I, right after this, we're going to be recording a bonus Patreon episode. We are doing our top three horror movie posters. So that's going to be super fun. I can't wait to have that discussion with Maddie. Can't wait to see what your three are. It's going to be super yes. fun. Yeah, so, it's the top three, you know, we say it's just three of our favorites, you know, like we say. Yeah, but that's just yeah. a great, great topic. I, I'm, I'm excited to see what picks you're going to have. So uh, people out there, please, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. It really helps us, keeps us motivated to keep doing this for you guys. And if you enjoy our podcast, it gives you extra bonus content. You can uh, listen to Maddie and I, and we we have also done some videos and uh, yes, we have segments, video segments that we would do kind of regularly, so yeah. somewhat regularly, yeah. and articles too. And uh, yeah, the, there's definitely a lot more of that coming. So please go to our yes. Patreon, and if you go to um, if you go to our Instagram, uh, the link should be right in our bio. But you can also just go to Patreon and just search "Alone in the Dark" podcast, and you will find us. So thank you guys. Yes. And we're planning on also doing another uh, episode for August, another Patreon episode. Yes. So we're trying to keep that. I know uh, our Patreons mean a lot to us, so we don't want to just like do one every couple of months. We want to kind of try to keep it as regular as we can. Yep, and sneaking those videos in there too as well. So there's not yes. just not just podcasts. It's like uh, other stuff going on. You know, uh, yep. Matt does some videos in his in his house. I do uh, some videos here in the podcast room. You know, some movie reviews. So you guys get to see kind of like a behind the scenes of of what Maddie and I do and what we're kind of into and what we have at our house and what we're yeah and if you subscribe at a certain level like you get a personalized uh, if you find yourself alone in the dark from me so. yes which has been great you've, the responses we've been getting the ones that matt has done has been awesome so uh i think people really enjoy those matt which is great and there's other levels where you get a, a free t-shirt which is great you get a pick of whatever t-shirt you want from our t public site and i believe we we're gonna have a new t-shirt coming out uh, let's say in the next, by the end of summer, uh, maybe end of summer, early fall, I would say we'll probably have a new t-shirt design, which I'm super psyched about. So, uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, no hints on that one. I uh, don't want to spoil it for you guys. So you guys will be super psyched when you see it though. Um, so that's that. And then also if you could subscribe and rate us on iTunes, if you're an Apple person that really helps us, uh, helps people discover the podcast. Um, it's just the way those algorithms work. So if you could do that, we'd really appreciate it. So Matt, are you ready to dive into the world of Nightmare on Elm Street 2? I believe I am. Let's do this. So we used to do uh, actually last year, 2019, yes. for a couple of months um, running anyway, in the spring of uh, last year, we did a couple of things we started um, called talking points where we kind of threw the gauntlet down on, you know, this versus that or, you know, kind of or we, in this case, you know, our first one was Scream 2 versus Scream 3. I believe right. that was like the first one we did, mm -hmm. um, which we which was I thought we, we had a lot of fun with it. Um, and we actually did. Um, something where we kind of throw a thesis statement down. We went old school, like you're in high you know, like you're in high school or something. And you have that, that paper, that English paper to write. So we kind of threw like a thesis statement or like some kind of debate statement down. Um, so the one we did was, um, John Carpenter is the thing is John Carpenter's best film. We kind of yes. come up with all these talking points that we discuss 
And at the end, we say, well, is it or not? You know, we kind of take a stand on it. Right. So the latest edition of this, since we're not, you know, we were doing those as Instagram lives and they kind of just disappeared into ether. Whoever happened to be there got to see it. And everybody else, it's like, oh, you know, there's a lot of great content that we were kind of leaving on the floor, so to speak. So we decided to kind of kind of filter these in a little bit at a time. So the talking point um, that we want to discuss, because we really like hitting this series up whenever we can. You always talk about diving back into it. Mm-hmm. The talking point for tonight is A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, yes. is the best sequel in the entire Nightmare franchise. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay? So just put that one in your cap for now. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, is the best sequel in the entire Nightmare franchise. <laughs> all right. So first of all, Mike, I wanted this. I found this interesting quote from um, Francis Ford Coppola, of all people, The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, yep. etc., he had this to say in general about sequels. I thought it was a really interesting uh, quote. He says, sequels are not done for the audience or cinema or the filmmakers. It's for the distributor. The film becomes a brand. Right. I thought that was kind of a good leaping off point because at this point um, with Nightmare 2, th- it's not a brand. Because no. I, I would, you know, I think a lot of people would, would say and argue that definitely with the next installment with Dream Wars, it started to become a brand. Right. Um, but with this, but I think that's a really valid statement. If, if you go you know, like Friday series has in Halloween, it definitely becomes a for sure. There's no arguing that point. Um, so it didn't become a true brand with this film. Um, and like I said, until the next one, um, yes. but then, and this film like strays far too, way too from left field from the original plot wise. Anyway, to really kind of feel like it's part of, of a Wes Craven's initial universe anyway. Um, right. But- although the character Freddie obviously seamlessly, um, is a bad Freddy, you know, dangerous Freddy, so to speak. I call um, still, dark Freddy. In this dark one. Freddy. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's only, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is. I know, uh, you know, the famous thing about, Ant, you know, Anthony uh, Hopkins in Sons of the Lambs is that he only has like 16 or 17 minutes of screen time, believe it or not. Right. And I think Robert England in this film does, he doesn't have, an, he doesn't, he's not on screen like the whole movie. You do see him a lot more than you probably, you know, uh, the Jaws principle is kind of lost a little here because you definitely see him more than you wanted to see him, yes, I guess. Yes, yes. He's not as, not as, you know, the mystique is kind of, de- you know, demolished a bit. But he's still not on screen for an excessively long time, as far as I know. No, he doesn't. He, I don't think he is. He's definitely focused more on our main character, Jesse. Absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought that was, I thought that was a cool quote by Coppola, though, just to kind of kick off, you know, how, how, how it's a brand. You know, it's not, it's not. I kind of would disagree now a little bit. Uh, I think it is done for the audience somewhat. Um, I agree. Definitely not the film. I don't think the filmmaker. I don't really don't think it's done done for the. I agree with hundred percent with Coppola about that. I don't think it's done for the filmmaker. No, no filmmaker is like let me let me throw myself in and start my career doing a sequel because that doesn't exactly kind of create your voice if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? Unless you're the, kind of following unless a the trend, filmmaker so is like a real fan. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, true. Then it could be for the filmmaker, you know what I mean. But I think it's definitely, like you said, it's it's the studio first. Uh, they're trying to bank on on what you know has happened in the first one. So um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I got a couple of reviews here too, Mike. Only a couple. I was looking through some stuff. Um, okay. I couldn't find. I couldn't find what Roger. I really wanted to know what Roger Ebert said about oh this in 1985. Yeah. I couldn't find it, but I did find a couple of other big reviews, like People Magazine. I found. Um, Freddie's main antagonist is played by Mark Patton with an intensity better reserved for King Lear. <laughs> that, that would be a Shakespeare correct character. Yes. The director, Jack Shoulder, has written and directed for PBS. For this, he deserves to be boiled in oil or worse, <laughs> forced to watch this tedious, humorless mess three or four times in a row. Oh, my gosh. Well, needless to say, not 
a ringing endorsement for this film from uh-huh. People Magazine. Janet Maslin from the New York Times um, is the only other one I, I have here. And it's, she said, one of the more spectacular sequences as Freddie emerging from within Jesse. And I agree, that is absolutely starkly original. And right. One of my favorite things in the whole series. Yes. This is executed with all the usual gut spilling gore, but also with the strange sight of Freddie's features suddenly outlined on Jesse's stomach. Mm-hmm. Mr. Shoulder manages to make all of this, even the more familiar touches, seem startling. We're going to touch on the directing a little bit later. Yep. Um, and I, I totally agree with Janet Maslin. I think she nails this. So she mixed it. So, so that's kind of a pretty good, I thought, um, you know, completely opposed to what, what people magazine said. She gives at least a lot of credit to the director and to, to the, some of the sequences that, that are, you know, spectacle. And I I thought, thought that was kind of cool. Very cool. It's a, yeah, night and day uh, review, but that's usually how it is in the press. You know what I mean? You have people that hate it, people that will give it some props, you know? And this movie, Mike, as you know, and as it's well done, I mean, nothing here, you know, we're not trying to, I guess, we're not going to break, you know, we're going to give our insights and stuff as much as we can, but I mean, a lot of this is well documented. Um, you know, Never Sleep Again is such a phenomenal um, documentary. Oh my God. You can't go, you can't go wrong. You're going to hear some clips along the way from that. Um to kind of help us tell our story that we want to tell here yeah. about this movie. Because remember, we're, we're, we got there, going back here, it's, we're saying, you know, we're, we're kind of arguing the point that Nightmare 2 is the best sequel in the franchise. So yes. just the keep best that sequel. in the, right. Yes, correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So part of the history of this film, like New Line Cinema, you know, obviously refused to give poor old Robert England the pay raise that he was asking for and right. deserved and deserved greatly. Yep. Uh, so an extra actually was initially cast as Freddie mm-hmm. and, um, Finally, Robert Shea, uh, Mr. New Line Cinema himself, after a few weeks, came to his freaking senses and uh, gave Robert his race because this film without Robert England, I just don't even know what that looks like. Well, they they describe it, right? I think in the documentary and said it was so bad, like the the guy just couldn't pull it off. He just it, it was so different and so terrible that it was hard to watch. Yeah, I, I just Robert England is such has such fierce intelligence and he's so insightful and and just the way you know when he does an interview it's almost like a performance but he's not putting i'm not saying he's putting it on anything or putting airs or anything he's just sharp and intelligent what you can tell he really just becomes this character like he owns this character there's nobody else that could do it no offense to jackie earl hurley from uh, the the remake either but no but yeah he's proven it sequel after sequel you know what i mean it's just and he's i feel like he's almost you know through certain sequels he's gotten better at it in in a sense you know mike in a parallel universe how's this for what could have been your boy michael J. Michael yeah. J. Fox mm-hmm. was actually not not up for the part or anything. He was considered to play Jesse, but Imagine. he was already com- he was already committed to Back to the Future and Team Wolf. Oh my God! I think he made the um, right choice. <laughs> holy mackerel! Can you imagine? I mean, I, I can't even this this I can't imagine. I can't envision what Michael J. Fox would have done in this role. Oh my God! It, it would have been a different movie. I feel. Who knows? Completely. Who knows? You know, with you the- know what? We'll never know. And I'm kind of glad that we'll never know. Because yeah. honestly, with all that said, you know, after wa- you know, after watching this so many times already, um, I've seen this film a lot, a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Patton really acquits himself well in this movie overall. I really think that. No, I think he did a great job. Yeah. I mean, in the position that he's in, I mean, we'll get we'll get to all this. But, yes. Um, with all he was going through and everything else, watching, you know, because we both saw Scream Queen too, that uh, yeah. my, my night. 
My Nightmare on Elm Street, his, yep. his uh, documentary. It's fantastic. Excellent. Yeah, everyone should go see that. It's really, really well done. Yeah, that, you know, you know, if this movie hadn't become a hit, like think about New Line Cinema. This is like their first foray into like a hit because they really haven't been you know, the initial films that they were doing. I think the first one was our our title of our podcast. I believe Alone in the Dark yes. was one of their first, if not the first, uh, New Line Cinema film. But um, if this film didn't become hit, and it, let's face it, I mean, you may not think of it, but this film was a hit, Mike, a genuine oh, yeah. hit. Yeah. Um, you know, it could have well sunk the damn. New Line Cinemas into the toilet. Right. How many years after the original did this one come out? Was it two? It was a year after, dude. A year after. Okay. So yes. They really, so they really ru- they it. rushed. They rushed, and that's part of, I believe, the criticism against it is because yes. they really didn't sit back and go, let's craft something that, you know, it's going to be, I don't know, in the same universe. Or they just kind of like, listen, let's get a script going right. and let's break some rules if we have to, whatever it takes, right. just to get it done. Yep. And, you know, those, those European audiences, Mike, those savvy, evidently smarter European audiences, mm-hmm. who, you know, not only they not only intuited the sexual homoerotic overtones, they rather enjoyed them. And right. they, uh, mm-hmm. this film became pretty profitable overseas. And then obviously here it began to hit as well. So yeah. um, just some initial stuff to kind of wade through and think about as we start our, our uh, on our journey here. Yeah, well, let's get to it. So opening scene, Mike, mm-hmm. opening scene. So you, a universal nightmare, right? Somebody, something anybody can relate to being on a school bus. Yes. Um, and I can't believe, you know, what a starkly good looking guy Mark Patton is for them to turn him into like, you know, Poindexter from Revenge <laughs> of the Nerds. Like he just, I can't believe how nerd, like, and I, listen, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I just can't, they really like ugly him down. They did. The yeah. Just film. the way he's dressed, you know, cause he's dressed way hipper and later in the film, he's, he, he's a good looking dude, you know? Yeah. That but, uh, like red Hawaiian shirt when the snake's crawling around when he's sleeping <laughs> in class or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, he's definitely played down. It's like almost like a, there's like bags under his eyes, you know? Um, yeah. He just doesn't look, uh, he just doesn't look hip. No, I, mean, I do. I just, I do love the universality of like being on a bus, though. A lot of people know what that experience is like, right? No, and, and I made a note. It just reminded me so much of like if John Hughes made a horror film, this would be his intro. You know what I mean? Like it just had that same vibe as like those John Hughes movies, like Sixteen Candles, and you know the whole bus. Barris, scene. Is this is this where Ed Rooney ends up at the end after he gets a squishy gummy bear <laughs> offered those warm gummy bears from that girl's pocket? Yeah, is this that's where it. he ends up? Gummy bear. Been in my pocket. They're real warm and soft. That may be, but that's that's why I loved it so much because it just had that famili- familiarity to me, where it just felt like a John Hughes movie, which I you know grew up loving. So, same. But to me, Mike, I, I'm going to push that a little further. To me, it was always that kind of fear when you're irrational fear when you're a younger kid yeah. of like that sketchy bus driver that you just never knew, like, is this the day that this guy or girl or woman is just going to go insane? Right. And what, what happens when they lose their shit? Mike, where do you go? Like, what are they going to do behind the wheel of a bus? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's that unknown, that irrational fear. Like I say, when you're a little kid and it's like, are they, you know, who knows? You could go off-roading into the desert toward hell itself. Yeah. Like, and, and who is the bus driver, Maddie? Oh, well, Robert England, I guess. I wonder if this was the first scene he shot <laughs> like when, when he came back. <laughs> yeah. If this was like, like you know, his, oh, you gave him my – okay, well, let's do this then. His F you, like I'm getting my money, you know. 
And besides he, New Nightmare, this is the only other film that he in the Nightmare series that he plays himself, right? Or plays not himself, but plays uh, with him without out, the makeup. makeup yeah, there's no I, other movie I, that he does that besides New Nightmare, right? I'm not gonna. I'm not sure if that's true or not. So, so we talked about the opening scene, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think I think it acquits itself well in the opening scene. You know, as far as opening scenes go in the series, I think it's. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, granted, it has some cheesy effects that have dated a bit. It's pretty ambitious. You know what I mean? If you think yeah, about but it. Yeah, the idea. Yeah, the idea is great. It's solid. Yeah, it's cool. And, you know, even though the effects are cheesy, I love those those cool kind of practical effects. So it didn't bother me. Obviously, when you watch it now, it seems pretty dated. But I don't remember when I saw this on TV back in the day when I was a kid. I don't remember being like, that's cheesy. Do you? No. no. I, and I think I've talked about this in the podcast before. I've I think I'm almost positive I saw this before the original. Yeah, I know you said that before. Let's go on to characters, Mike. Yes. So everybody, I mean, who in their life doesn't know a Grady, Mike? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know Grady. I know Grady. I think he plays the same character in Weird Science, to be honest with you. He might, he actually might be playing the same character as the story, I, so you might be right. It's like the same exact character. I mean, he's much. not going, hey, he's like, oh, he's right, right, like slushy right. on somebody's head, but yeah. But yeah, he's definitely got that bully vibe, but then that changes, you know, throughout. But um, no, I think he, you know, it, it's, I think it's a good setup for his character. And then I think he, you know, with the whole friendship, that's like one of my favorite parts of the movie is the friendship of Jesse and Grady, you know? And the way it starts is odd, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because it, it, look, it really looks like Grady is going to be like bullying him. Right. It's almost like they, they set it up that way, you know? But I think it's like almost like a John Hughes movie again. We're like almost like the Breakfast Club. They're forced, uh, they're punished together and they find this connection through this punishment, you know, and then they become really close, you know? I love I love Robert Rustler, Ron yeah. Grady. You know you know what's funny is Robert Downey Jr. drove him to this to the uh, to try out for this movie right from the set of Weird Science. <laughs> he really so did that. Awesome. How great is that? That is such a cool thing. Isn't that amazing? I love it. It's so great. Yeah, man, they're young actors, man, just like, you know, doing their thing, trying to get work. Yeah. And Mike and Mike, if you if you can't get Meryl Streep to be in your film. Why not <laughs> hire a girl like like Kim Myers, who she, plays Lisa, who looks exactly like a young Meryl Streep? Kim looks so much like Meryl Streep; it's not even funny. And they they even admit the director uh, admitted that they hired her because she looked like like her. You know what I mean? Right. That's that's pathetic. But I, I just it's uncanny though to me how much like. Like, I guess that has to be a thing because it just can't be just like, oh, she's just an actress who happens to look. You're right. It, it had to be something like, oh, the director only hired her because that's that's, that's kind of sad for her. That's not saying much right. about her. Right. As an she's actress, an amazing actress. She did a great job in this film. You know, what a great because she's essentially the hero in this film. A hundred percent. Right. And I would say that Jesse is our scream queen based on, you know, not not only just watching the movie, but based on the, the title of his documentary. He's the scream queen in this film, you know. Absolutely. He admits that and he's embraced for that. Um, and, yeah, it's I, I, I do think there's something interesting about that. I really do. Yeah. Well, let's and we'll talk, talk about that. Yeah. Well, go ahead. No, I was, was going to say, this. let's talk about Mark Patton as Jesse, because you got to talk about him as a character. Um, yes. I, 
I've, I knew teens like this. You know what I mean? I had friends that were like this. You know what I mean? I am a little bit of, of Jesse's character. I was awkward and, and, and shy. Insecure. And insecure. Yeah, sure. So there's a lot, not even, you know, the fact that I know the, you know, all the innuendo that he's gay, you know, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. Like he, he has real typical teen things happening that a lot of us has, have experienced, whether you're a boy or a girl, you know what I mean? And I really right. related to that when I was a kid. I really did, you know? So I think he, uh, it's a great character, you know? I think Jesse's fantastic. I think there's a lot, I mean, obviously when he starts to, um, you know, to, to live in the house and starts to experience some pretty strange yes. shit, like his, like his uh, lamp melting um, <laughs> and the little girl jumping rope in, in the bedroom. Yes. Um, I think he starts to go off the rails, but he's a pretty average kid established, um, you know, obviously from the beginning. Cause he does have, he and Grady kind of do bond over their dislike of coach Snyder. They don't yes. like him at all. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, you know, when his dad, you know, the biggest problem he seems to have besides, you know, obviously with the nightmares are the biggest problem, but as far as his family's concerns is that he hasn't unpacked his freaking room. Like, you know, <laughs> but like, <laughs> can't you relate to that? Like not cleaning up your room and not, you know, and, yeah, and man. even we're going to get to the dance later, but just the way he cleans up his room is just tossing things. How, how many drawers did you have growing up where you opened it and it barely opened because there was shit sticking out of it? Like yeah, I could, man. I could go down to my son's room right now and I know which drawer it is at his desk. That is exactly like that, where he's just tossed. When I tell him to clean up, I know he's just tossing things in there until they can't, he can't, you know, he can barely close the drawer, you know? So we can all relate to that, you know? We can. And if you and honestly, if you're going to clean your room, Mike, and you're going to unpack your room, you might as well do it in style. I agree, <laughs> and, and and Mark Patton certainly, uh, admittedly, doesn't 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 really. I'm sure he doesn't like to watch that scene now, <laughs> but uh, he got it done, and it's forever committed, you know, on celluloid and film for everyone to enjoy for generations to come. Yeah, and we're all we're all the better for it. And touch me and all that other good stuff. <laughs> Quite inferior, and I had a lot of notes. And they said, "We just want to shoot this," so uh, off they went. The writer, Mike. Let's talk about Mr. David Chaskin. Mm-hmm. Okay, he was, you know, he's former employee of New Line Cinema. He worked like I don't know in the distribution department of the 16 mil department or whatever, and. You know, the idea of abandoning the ideas put forth in the original, to me, is absolutely batshit crazy, if you think about it. I mean, Wes Craven set up a genius template in this first film. I mean, the original. I I understand the need of an artist and a writer to not ever want to just say, oh, well, that was so good, so I'm just going to do the same thing. I understand. I'm not saying that. But when you set up a template and a character like Freddy with, with, with the whole, the whole conceit of a nightmare. Well, rules, um, there's a lot of rules and that rules. were broken. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And rules. He completely abandoned. Like you said, abandons the rules puts, you know, it, it's like a pseudo possession slasher. What would you call this? Yeah. There's definitely, it's like, Fred, like you said, Freddie's growing inside of Jesse's body, you know, and he's trying to come out. It's almost like uh, like an exorcism. If you think about it, you know? So, the biggest problem to me, and, he, and I, like I said, I am, I'm a big fan of this film. I really am when, mm-hmm. it, when it comes down to it. But the biggest problem for me, if you're going to look at it and stand back and look at it, is 
you have a bonafide icon in Freddie and the character of Freddie and Fre- and Robert England's a rock star. Yes. And now he's not well, he is, but he's not even going to really be the one that's killing everybody. Like, right. wait, what? Yeah. Is Jesse is killing people. Like, gonna, like, I don't know. It's just, to me, it's absolutely uh, out of its mind for that. Yeah. I think, and you know, I, I think we'll get into more detail about it, but the whole pool scene too, always sort of gave me a bad taste in my mouth because it really broke a major rule that Freddie is 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 very uh, you know the, he can come after you in your dreams and that's the only way he can do it so right that was the fear part that was when you watched the first movie it was that fear of falling asleep where all of a sudden that rule is broken and it just doesn't make sense you know what i mean it's just it's a little strange so but to 12 or 13 year old me mike i didn't even I didn't even consider these things. No, I know. You. I know. But now looking back, we can sort of put a microscope up to it and say, hey, what's going on here? You know, this is. I mean, if someone just pitched this to you, though, it is kind of a cool story idea. Like, hey, um, I, you know, to possess a guy so so Freddie can carry out his mayhem in the real world. That's a cool, like, log line, if you will. You it know, is. it's kind of, it sounds cool. Like, you'd be like, oh, I'd be in for that. Right. You know, but like you said, at the party, um, you know, you get a peek behind the curtain that you shouldn't have access to, so to mm-hmm. speak. You know, yeah. Freddie's his whole mystique, like you said, is compromised. Yes. You know, his his turf is what the dream realm, not reality. Right. right. Like you're saying, I completely agree that, that that's what doesn't add up. But in addition to this demystification of Freddie, Mike, which is what do I have the problem with? You also have the complete undoing of what makes Freddie so terrifying in the first place. Like he's unstoppable, right? Yeah. And you can't control your dreams. That's why he's unstoppable. Right. You simply can't control that part of you. Yes. You know, the, these subconscious entities and, and and Freddie's manipulation of them of that makes him, you know all powerful and omnipotent in a way that and just completely unstoppable but then this film seems to suggest at the end that love conquers all like there's a few scenes where lisa gets ready to stop attacking him as she yeah. lovingly appeals to jesse inside mm-hmm. of him it's a little bizarre although mike having watched halloween five doesn't <laughs> halloween five borrow from this when when he starts uncle mikey's crying and when she's in the coffin i mean let me see Just like me. Before we get off of the pool scene, I want to make an argument that that scene almost is scarier in the sense that you think you're safe when you're awake, you know, with Freddy Krueger, but then all of a sudden the rule is broken and it's like all bets are off, you know, like Freddy's here. So if you think about it, that almost makes it scarier in a sense because you're used to one thing and you think you're safe, but then, you know, it's, it's a different, different story. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to talk about it because it has to be mentioned, and of course, it's mentioned a lot of uh, the source material here. But David Chaskin has to, the writer has to be held accountable for at least a few things. Mike, yes. he, he does admit in the documentary, the Scream Queen documentary, that Nightmare Two has some, and, and this is what kills me, has some intentional subtext, right? Right. And that he, and to his words, like it's meant to play homophobic rather than homoerotic. And I can understand as a writer, that's got to be a really fascinating thing to pursue, right? Like trying to get inside the head of someone. Um, you know, through your own homophobia to kind of like paint a picture of that, that's got to be a really interesting thing. And, and if you, and if it's done slyly and subtly and, you know, I think there's a way that you could do that and it could be really good. Um, I, I just think that a good writer buries that stuff and, and, and doesn't make, you know, doesn't giggle in the corner like some naughty schoolboy, which I feel like he did when yeah. he wrote this. No, absolutely. He, he was like the naughty kid in the corner. It was like, <laughs> they're, they're, let's see if they get this. And I honestly think, that people told him his movie was about that. I honestly think it's it's this complete 
not accident, because I think he was that muddy schoolboy in the corner who was right. writing some of this. Yeah. But I think some of the other stuff was just a freaking complete accident. And now he takes credit for it like it was like it was completely, you know, it was all part of his plan. I really don't think it was part of his plan. You may be right about that. I don't know. You know, some of it seems so on the surface that it's hard for me to believe that. But then you right. know, when you say that, I, I, I agree, you know, especially watching uh, the Scream Queen documentary. It seems like uh, he might be taking credit for some of it that he didn't really have an idea what he was writing. At like, the time. I just think like a guy like Mark, Mark Patton, like I think he was in a role in his life where he could read this and, and really say, wow, there's some of this that. I'm feeling like this is me, like, you know, and, and, and the obviousness of Freddie coming out out of him and all this stuff. And, yes. and, I mean, there, it's, there, there is some good subtext stuff in there, but there's also stuff that's completely off the wall. Um, but Mark Patton would be the guy to really be the one to say, you know, this is, this is genuine or I, you know, I understand this, or, right. you know, this is, and I just don't think David Chaskin, I honestly don't think a hundred percent of this is, he can say, Yep, everything just played out the way. This is what I I knew from the beginning. This is what I meant. I think people and critics and fans over the years have read into this and and dissected it like like a literary text. And now he's like, oh, yeah, that's that's what I meant. I simply did not have the self-awareness to realize that any of this might be interpreted as as gay. We made Nightmare 2 absolutely clueless that it had any gay overtones whatsoever. I'm absolutely sure there's not one moment that I remember that it was discussed. Also the fact that like, you have this anti-gay movement and this AIDS homophobia going on. It, like, You have to understand, right in the middle of the 80s, and that's where this film comes out. You know? Yeah, yeah. But for, but for David Chaskin to think it was clever to have a laugh on the subject, like, it's probably, there's really nothing clever about that. And why? If you're if you're trying to, right, you know, why I, I think it's kind of cool. Why would you do that as a writer? That's you, you're not like uh, you're not William Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Like, why would you take a risk by making a joke like that? You know, where it could well, risk like said, your career. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, especially, I, like I said, yeah. Especially, he's not doing it on purpose, or he's not. No, yeah. that's the thing. I don't. I really don't think he is. I think he's just. He was a writer that had a chance. That it got it got really front loaded quickly, and and you know, let, let's make this movie with a huge turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, he had the in with New Line Cinema, having worked for them. And, you know, really at the end of the day, Mike, you can't say like, it's not David Chaskin's fault. I, really, I mean, right. I know there's a really tender, I, I, it eventually turns out tender. It's a little, it's a little taut and, and uncomfortable at first when Mark Patton hunts him down. Oh my God. Down, but but yeah. when he wants to talk to him. Right. But then I thought that was a really good meeting. I, like the, Mark, Mark, Mark Patton needed that in his life. That, that's what he needed. Yes, he and had, I, I had that, to I have that, that cool. conversation, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's cool that David Chaskin allowed him to do that. Like, you know, he did. He invited him, and he knew what he wanted to talk about, so he didn't, and he didn't avoid him. Like, he let him have that. Well, it was good closure for Mark to have yeah. that, you know? So, so I did, it's not David Chaskin's fault, though, Mike. When you think about all the stuff that was going on, it's like a perfect storm of, like, AIDS, paranoia, homophobia. Right. Like, context is everything. It's just, like, bad. It's a bad timing. Like, if this was made at a, a different time, it wouldn't have been as bad. But Mark Patton, you know, with all these guys and, and friends of his and stuff dying around him from this new strange disease and all that stuff, I mean, that's – there was so much going on in his real life that kind of – that's why I think this didn't play as well for him afterwards. And yes. why it was hard to shake for him. And I feel, I feel for him and I'm glad, like you said, I'm glad he got that closure. I really am. Yeah. It's too bad that it had to happen, you know, so many, so many years later, you know? Yeah. But I, you know, he's a, he, you know, he, 
we'll talk about the legacy in a little bit, but man, he's, he's a pretty lucky guy because as far as being known for this, I think this movie is getting stronger and stronger with each passing year. So nostalgia fun factor, which you mentioned, what do you think, Mike? Um, I, you know, I'm a big fashion guy, so I just love the uh, nostalgia of the just the fashion, you know, like just a couple things that popped out to me. Uh, and this is the kind of stuff that I always gravitate to when I watch, you know, 80s movies is just like the outfits that they wear, you know, like I, I think uh, like the girls in the pool. The girls in the pool, definitely the, you know, the high, you know, the high, uh, the bikinis, you know, the, the, I forget what they call like high waisted bikinis or whatever. Um, I love like Jesse's one shirt where Freddie's, uh, comes out of his chest. Like he's got that like geometric shape, like collared shirt, you know, <laughs> I love that shirt. Like, yeah. Those, those are great. You know, um, I think, uh, Grady has like a, Grady's got like the typical like black, uh, tank top with like khakis, you know, um, like dockers or something. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I, this this nostalgia factor for the for me is through the roof with this because I saw it first yeah. and it definitely holds a special place. You know, overall, when you say fun, uh, when you're young, this movie's not fun. It's it's, it's <laughs> no, very it's dark. Terrifying. It yeah, really it's is. It's very dark. It's it's bleak. Um, but it but it does leave a, it does leave an impression on you. It's it's memorable. You think about it afterwards. Um, you know, three parts three and four. They say exist. To me, they seem to exist in some like magical, mystical world, a kind of like Elm Street by way of like Mordor by Tolkien, right. you know, or something. <laughs> but this, Mike, this is still scary, Freddy, man. Freddy he really is, still is terrifying. Um, I, even though the party scene is completely illogical and it breaks rules and everything, it's a lot of fun. I mean, when, they, when they're waiting for the, the parents' light bedroom light to go off, and yes. then all of a sudden, like they're they're waiting and counting, and then they flip the different tape in, and then they, yeah. they wheel out they wheel out the radio flyer wagon with all the beer in it. And stuff. It's freaking oh hilarious. God. It's great. It's so funny. <laughs> so I mean, there is there are some fun moments in this movie. Um, well, you got we got to talk about the dancing. This is like the oh, the, the, the funnest. If funnest was a word, the funnest moment I feel like in uh, in horror movie history. You know, like Mark's dance is uh, is classic, man. It's like uh, it, it, all his moves are just out of control. <laughs> I mean, closing you know, you close the drawer with, with your ass. I mean, why not? Yeah, and touch me all night by Fonda Ray. But we do like, it though, Mike. Come on, you sing into your hairbrush. Like you look oh, in your mirror. And, I mean, come on, dude. I I'll talk about this later. Like uh, when we talk about, you know, we're going to talk about which characters we think we're oh, most like. Oh, that's coming up next. Yeah, that's coming up next. Yeah, so I'll, I'll wait. But it's it's such a fun scene. I think it's great. Just the talk about you know nostalgia, like the the glasses that he's wearing with like the yes. the vent glasses. You know. Uh, it's just great, man. It just brings me back. But that scene is, is hilarious. But I agree. Like the, the dance scene and the, and the pool scene is just classic, you know? I mean, it's the Stray Cats poster in, in, oh. Rob, in, in his room, in, in Grady's yeah. room. Yeah, it's great, man. Just all that stuff. All that production design stuff. I love when uh, you really capture a teen and what a teen's room would, would have and, and the differences of teens, right? You know, like the Jesse's room is very different from Grady's room, you know what I mean? And that shows, you know, it's awesome. Right. So 
So what character <laughs> is Mikey most like? <laughs> Go ahead, Mikey. I want, I want you to, I want to hear this. Well, I, I said Jesse, honestly, because I can relate, man. I was like this awkward teen. Um, I w- didn't have a lot of confidence. Uh, I definitely failed with girls a lot, you know? Um, but I, I've, I've literally had that moment where I sang in my room into like objects in around my room. Like I'll never forget. I used to sing when uh culture club came out with the song, karma chameleon, karma chameleon. Yeah. I had the 45 and I used to play it nonstop. And my mom would scream upstairs, please turn that off. And I would just <laughs> sing it over and over again, dancing around my room, jumping off the bed, um, doing all kinds of stuff. So um, as far for me, I would say Jesse is, is me. Definitely. What would you say? For you? Yeah. I don't know, man. I always thought you had. I don't know. When I know you, you have a you have a tiny bit of Grady in you, a little little bit. I think I'm like great. I, I'm definitely more Grady now. Part. You know. Yeah, but back, for sure. That's what I mean. That's but back I mean. then, uh, no, I, I was Jesse for sure. <laughs> well, Mike, I believe that I am mostly like Clue Gulliger, Jesse's dad. <laughs> I never saw that coming, Matty. Oh my well, god! He, he's swinging the broom, trying to whack that bird, and, and instead he smashes he smashes the lamp instead. Then he's trying to he's trying, he's trying to move the stove and check for the gas leak. He lifts his head and cracks his skull on the range hood. Oh my like god! He, he's the clumsiest bastard, man. Just like me. Like, but you were were you like that as a teen? I mean, I was pretty clumsy. Like, I just really? rushed stuff, and it seems like he does that too. Like, I, I he's don't just s- geeky. Like, I don't know. I just think. Uh, he's kind of like this nerdish nebbish like guy. And I just, think, I just see a lot of myself in Clue Gulliger. That is so funny. I don't see you as clumsy at all. Like not, yeah, I am though. The, all the years we've been friends, I've never seen a clumsy bone in your body, dude. I really haven't. Um, I'm glad that I've, uh, I, I've been able to deceive you all these years, Mike. <laughs> well, you ready for this? You know who <laughs> I think you're like in this movie? Oh God. You ready? I'm ready. Lisa. Lisa. I knew you were going to say that. You're Lisa. As soon as you said, you ready? I said, yep, I'm ready. And there's, you're like, uh, to me, so you're, getting, you're I'm like, my breasts kissed in, in, in the deck house. <laughs> Don't you wish? No. Um, Gene Simmons has got his demon tongue out on my chest. No, I just, uh, I see you as a hero, man. And I also like, oh, that's nice. Since I've known you, you've always gone out of your way to help people. Like, put yourself you put your selfishness like you're not selfish at all that's what i meant to say you put your selfishness you uh you don't have selfishness at all and you always put your you put other people in front of you and you always go out of your way to help people so lisa is like the ultimate person right all she wants to do is help jesse and she does yeah so i was like maddie's lisa for sure that's nice man that's awesome you know i just just noticed they have a uh that grady also has a king cobra poster on as well (laughs) king cobra yeah, I, mean, oh I have it on the God. background. While, while we're talking, I have it on in the background. So. That's awesome, nice. And and the uh, he's coming out of Jesse's stomach right now. <laughs> that's great, dude. Awesome. So uh, yeah, that's fun, man. I'm glad we. I was glad that we do. Uh, I like yeah. that category a lot. I like it I think too. It's, I think it's interesting to analyze those kind of things. So Mike, no, the Freddie performance in this yes. movie, uh, mm-hmm. much more than. You know, the, a guy in a rubber mask. Robert England doesn't like we were talking about before. He doesn't play Freddy. He is no, Freddy Krueger. He is. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he goes for it in this movie too. He does. Like I would say, he plays it pretty different than he does in Part One. Wouldn't you say? Oh yes, absolutely. And, and I don't you know. know do you think, think that's but, Do you think that's him, or do you think that's the direction? I think it's a little bit more of what 
I think it, here's the little, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking it's, I think it's more, um, not the director. Cause I, I know Jack mm. shoulder was very, just kind of holding, trying to hold it all together right? while this was all going on. I know he had a thousand, I mean, for him to say honestly that he had no idea about, about the sexual overtones or the, yeah. or the homophobia, like he, he literally to this day says he, he really had no idea back in the day cause he just was trying to hold it all together. Right. Right. He had a lot on his mind. So I really don't think it was him so much. I really think it was Robert England. And I think part of it was, you know what? You didn't, you didn't fucking hire me in the first two weeks. Well, now I'm going to, now I got a chip on my shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to come back and I'm going to, yeah. And I'm going to do this a little bit differently. I, I know. I, I almost think there's a little bit of that bitterness in there, like thrown in. Well, do you think it was like Wes Craven really directed him in one? And then in this one, he was like, I'm going to kind of give, give him my own spin now since, you know, uh, since you screwed me over, you know what I mean? Like, do you think it was more of Robert England sort of saying, Hey, I want to play him the way I kind of see him. And I, yeah, and I think another part of that it is like he he really couldn't put his finger on it. Like what? Like in, it's part of the writing. It goes back to writing. Like what the hell am I supposed to do in this? Like right. how do you want me to play? Because really, it, since it doesn't really make sense, how does an actor make sense of that? Yeah, yeah. How do they navigate those waters? How do right. you say, well, this makes no sense. So this is what I'm supposed to do in this scene. No, I mean I think if you think about that, like he mm-hmm. played the hell out of this part. Then if yeah. if he really had, if he had, if this was his instinct to do like to do i mean he really he he had freaking hit a home run in this movie then yeah i'll you know i'll I'll give the director and this might not be the director so much as like the lighting but like the scene in the hallway where uh freddie has we got director coming up soon yeah Um, but i just want to talk about freddie's performance because i feel like it's part freddie's performance and it's part just almost visuals you know what i mean because when he's in the hallway and he's talking to jesse and he has the great line uh that we'll talk about you got the oh yes yeah yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that later um if you go back and watch that scene the way the lighting is it's so dark and like you can barely see freddie's eyes like the way it's lit is so clever um that they almost just light his like just light like under his eyes and stuff the way it's done it's really really well done and even when they cut to a wider shot um the way it's lit there too is very different than the way freddie was lit in part one and then the you know the films to follow after this one um so I, i don't know it's it's hard to say like performance wise i would say you know robert definitely brought his own take but i think part of the creepiness and the darkness of this Freddy Krueger in this film is lighting, you know? And if you go back and watch this movie and pay attention to that stuff, um, I think you'll agree with me. Yeah. I, I, and I think honestly, as a fan of these movies, you should savor every morsel of, of, of England's delicious performance because you know what happens, you know, scary Freddy dies a quick and painless death after this film. Oh my God. Yeah. The, what a difference from part two to part three, you know, you know, bad Freddy was scary Freddy to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And absolutely. That's not really the case. As great as dream warriors is. And we mm-hmm. know how much you and I both love that movie. Yes. And again, Robert England reinvents himself and brilliantly. Um, and certainly with maybe a, mo- maybe a more cohesive script than this one, right, you could argue. Right. But I mean, this, this was, Bad Freddy and yeah. scary Freddy still. Yes, you know what you know. Whatever the the messed up plot and the, and the confusing, uh, you know him and the illogical him in the real world and all that stuff. It's still Robert England just still beats the hell out of this thing, man. It really does. You know, counts himself well. I think. to 
to figure out what was going on on the face. It's like, what is all this? I, I can't figure it out. I wanted to give it uh, bone structure. I wanted to give it cheekbones and kind of make it more like a, a male witch, you know, give it a hook nose. And I had convinced Bob Shea to change Freddie's eyes from Robert England's normal green eyes to these sort of demonic red and yellow amber look colored eyes. There's something odd about it, and, and it, 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 it does, it fits in fine. It actually works. Kills and special effects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's not many kills, except once you get to the pool scene, it's like, there's like people dropping like flies. But up until that point, um, I think the first kill is Coach Schneider, isn't it? I believe that's right. The actual kill, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Coach Schneider is the first kill. And, you know, not that impressive as far as, for me, as special effects. You know, there's like, I think there's just a couple like um, cut marks on his back that just appear, you know? Yep. He gets his ass beat with some snap with some towels and stuff, but um, right. And the, the Mike kill, Ron, Ron Grady's death. Well, I was going to say you've talked about this before when we did our Freddy length. Kills episode. Yes, but this is definitely such a simple as far as special effects, such a simple effect. But this is one of the most disturbing kills uh, in a horror movie that I've seen. That I really, really have a hard time watching, just because the way that uh, the character Grady plays this with. Yes. Uh, with his reaction, you know, and, and, and like, again, screaming for his dad, you know. It's, and it's, what you were talking about before, too, though, the direction, the, the way it's edited and the way yeah. it's put together and constructed is brilliant. It's, it's like really with parents, well parents outside. I mean, it's yes. freak. It's unreal, man. To be that close to your son and not be able to get to him and then have those knives come through the door. Such a simple effect, but brilliant. And then cutting, you know, cutting back to Grady's face and seeing the blood come out of his mouth and just the look yeah. of panic on his eyes. It's uh, really, really clever so you know taking a little like little what you have special effects budget wise and making making it huge i feel like this is like a perfect example of this yeah this is people's first um you know you know if this is people's first taste of what our podcast is definitely go back to the freddie kills episode as a companion piece to this because this will make a lot more sense because we we go a lot more in depth about uh, Mm -hmm. how i think this this kill scene is is every bit the equal almost of Tina's from the first film, which is to me the most brilliant thing. Oh my god! In, yeah. in the series, mm-hmm. but I really think that Grady stands up right shoulder to shoulder with it. Oh, um, I absolutely agree. And I mean, Kevin Yeager and Mark Shostrom, man, let these hats off to these guys. Yeah. Those special. They are wizards, man. And mm-hmm. one of the one of their girlfriend, I don't know if it's Kevin Yeager's girlfriend or something. Hers is the eyeball that you see come like in his mouth when he opens his mouth. You see oh, the eye that's looking awesome. through. Yeah, man. I mean, oh, and like you said, Robert Russler, he just makes every scream and yell and call for his father so authentic. Um, it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I, even the gym teacher's death, even though, you know, it's a bizarre setup. It really <laughs> is. With the nightclub and running, you know, making Jesse run laps around the gym in the middle of the night um, and then being stripped. And you see the, the tennis racket kind of glowing and. The, the strings popping and it's <laughs> but freddie's makeup man it's it's good i, I it's, it's fantastic in this movie even though they the, the, they said you know how hard it was to kind of reinvent or, or get you know what what the, exactly the face makeup looked like he said he had a hard time um kind of uh, copying that from the first film and maybe that's why they they kind of made the lighting darker in this because they didn't they weren't happy with the makeup. I just realized that, Matt. Maybe that was like a, a creative decision 
because maybe they were like, look, it doesn't look as good. So we're going to just darken everything. You know? And it works though. Like you said before, no, it works. Scarier. Yeah. It really is scarier. Cause it looks like his, his face, it looks, it's almost like his makeup is running, but it, <laughs> so to speak, like, right. like his, his face is melting. And until at the end when it actually literally starts melting off, it's yeah. spectacular in, yeah. in the, in the, in that factory or whatever. Right. Right. Oh man. It's unbelievable. So Mike, We've arrived at Mr. Jack's shoulder and talk about the direction. Well, can before we, I just wanted to talk about one other kill that wasn't like a real kill, but uh, the codicine, you know, on the bus. Yes. Uh, when Freddie's hand goes through Lisa's friend, I thought that was a really cool effect. You know what I mean? I just, yeah. and it was kind of, you know, uh, you were expecting something, but it was just, I thought it was pretty clever. So that's just one I wanted to bring up. <laughs> Jack was pretty good technically. He had come out of editing, so he knew how to tell stories. He does a remarkable job. If you think about all the things that he had to um, kind of, you know, volley with in this. He, here's mm -hmm. a guy who in 1982 directed his first feature, Alone in the Dark, which is an awesome film. And by the way, I'm still waiting for, for the collector's edition Blu-ray. I don't care who releases it, Severin. Someone's got to do it. Someone has to do the Vinegar Syndrome. So, there's so many good arrows. Somebody, I could see a nice fat arrow release with this one. Maybe, yeah. But then he follows it with this film in 85 and then The Hidden in 1987. I mean, that's – as a three-film run, Mike, I mean, those three movies, um, a tremendous three-film you know, run in a row. I don't think I've seen The Hidden. What's The uh, Hidden Mike, about, Maddie? Mike, you would love it. It's Kyle MacLachlan who's okay. in – I want to say Blue Velvet. Yeah, and I know Twin, Kyle. Twin Peaks and yep. stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. he's, um, he's an alien in that movie. Okay. And it's really, it's just like, it's a cop drama kind of and sci-fi. It's really good though. Oh, it's cool. a real, it's such a good, yeah, it's, I definitely recommend you watch it. Awesome. But he is a, he is a craftsman, man. He's a workman-like professional. He's, he's like a journeyman who never quite got to go on his full journey. You know, he made more films, but for me, similar to like a Fred Decker, let's say, who, who did Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad, like one after the other. Yep. You know, you're left to imagine if these guys had their playground for 20, 30 years running, like what they could have done, you know, right. and the money and the clout and the trust of producers, because clearly Jack Shoulder has the, all the talent in the world. Yeah. Um, same as Fred Decker, which is to me one of the biggest criminal oh. things that he didn't make more, a lot more movies. I, uh, know. I know. And he worked certainly, but he, you know, but Mike, the, even this, let's take the scene with the parakeet. It seems to be like this jokey, <laughs> jokey film right. thing, right? But when it's attacking the family, and it could have been, and should have ruined the whole film probably It's because it's that bad. Yeah. But he uses this crazy bird POV shot, and <laughs> I don't know, he turns it into like a little mini Hitchcock short. It, yeah, like, it definitely is. I think there's and I, I just appreciate there. It. Yeah, for sure. And there's no doubt. Um, and the way, he, I mean, I say he didn't direct the, the Grady death scene. He orchestrates the Grady yes. death scene. Yes. It's masterful. Um, Absolutely. Even the transitions, like the slow tracking shots up to the front of the house, um, like cut to a slow tracking shot of Jesse tossing and turning in his bed. Just like the little, the little things, Mike. Well, even know? at the beginning, you know, after the whole bus scene, you all of a sudden transition. I forget what it, it transitions to. Uh, I think Jesse about to get stabbed, and it cuts to the the mom cutting the, the tomato. tomato. Well, yeah, that, that's, that's yeah, that, that, that's that's a little obvious to me almost um, there, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's but it's cool though. It's like, fun. It, it is fun. But my favorite, like one of my favorite shots in the whole movie, might just be the one where it starts in the basement um, where the fire like kind of you know flans out and becomes yes. bright. And the camera moves up the basement steps, pushes the door open, and continues up the house. It goes all the way upstairs, and then goes into the little sister's room. 
That's pretty yeah, ambitious that's, of a shot, you know? It's amazing, dude. And then you don't see till later, because it's still on the POV of whoever walked up through the house. She kind of tosses and turns, and then you see him, it's Jesse, and you see him like kind of tuck, like grabbing her sheets and, and bringing it up to her neck, like retucking her in. Right. And he has, and he has the, the, you know, the glove and the knife fingers on, on the one hand. It's, it's, it's an amazing shot. No, it's great. It's really good. So, um, yeah, Jack Shoulder, man, I, I really, you know, whether he knew or not about all the homoerotic overtones, whatever, he, he right. knocks it out of the park, man. He no. does whatever he can with this movie and the best that he can. And he was doing what was on the page. You know what I mean? Like yes. that's, you know, what most directors do. They look at what the screenplay has got on the page and they direct it the best way they can. And I feel like he no, did. You- So now we move on, Mike, to the mm-hmm. soundtrack and the score. Yes, Christopher Young, right? Well, I think it, it is. I think it's Christopher Young, right? I is think so. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Charles Bernstein did the original. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, this is the only film in the series not to use Charles Bernstein's original theme music, right. or, or or any variation mm-hmm. on that theme. Yeah. Which to, if that's not bizarre, I don't know what is. It is. Because it's, it's sad. In a one sense. of the most iconic things, other than Freddie, about these movies is that 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 note, that ten note theme, or whatever, how many notes it, it's 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 unbelievably iconic. And what do you think the reason for that was? Was it rights? Was it was it just a, a creative choice? Like, I'm I'm assuming I'm assuming this. You know, hey, you know, we're making a second film. They're really kind of pushing Freddie in a different direction. Well, let's put the score in a different direction. Right. You know, it's right. a different kind of movie since it's not the same. And maybe the same music is not really going to work, which mm-hmm. I can see that point in yep. a way. But again, I maybe, and the other thing is hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Maybe much later as it becomes more of, as Francis Ford Coppola said, like, you know, a series and, you know, maybe then it is when it becomes more iconic. Maybe when this movie is released, certainly as great as that music is, it's not iconic yet. Right. 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 They didn't know so, that at that time. Right. So you have to you have to remember this is all done in the context of 1985. Yes. When this stuff's all still new, so we have to you know I always kind of have to stop myself and say, well, yeah, it's easy to say from 2020. Right. But what about when you're in the thick of it? So um, I'm indifferent about this score. I, it's fine. I'm just perplexed why you wouldn't use at least that theme. If you're not going to use anything else, just use that. You know, because it, it clearly whether you think it's you know iconic or not, it was certainly memorable. Yes. To, the, to the first nightmare film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will say it definitely has like a darker, I know I keep using the word dark, you know, lighting and stuff, but this theme definitely has a darker vibe uh, than some of the other, you know, not the, not the, you know, the, the, the traditional score part of the, the theme music that we know from part one that continued on, but there's definitely like a tar- darker tone to this one for me. I, I don't know if you feel that way, but the score, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Mike, I, I really think this movie itself, like you're saying, it, it almost is trying to separate itself somehow from the first one in as right. many ways as it can. And I don't know why it's doing that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the rush factor and it's the fact that they have to carry this into production or if just all these artists just said, you know what, uh, the, the special effects guy, well, I can't emulate the makeup from the first one, so I'm just going to kind of go on the stills and the different things that I see and do it. And the musician guy, you know, score saying, you know, I'm just going to, well, I'm going to do my own thing. And, and Jack Shoulder going, well, I, I don't know what's going on. He's in the real world. Okay, well, I'm just going to do the best I can with this. Yeah. 
wait, there's dogs with human faces on it. Oh, well, yeah. Well, uh, all right. Well, I'm, I'm just going to, that's fine. We'll, we'll do the best we can. But it's like this purposeful breaking away from like all this stuff that Wes created. I don't know. Like it's trying yeah. to be something on its own and like exist almost like Freddie going out of jet, like Jesse basically in that one scene is the original Nightmare on Street. And this one is kind of clawing its way out. Right, right. Of, you know, if you want to look at it in a, in a, in a way like that. <laughs> So favorite lines, Mike, you could say, I know there's some obvious ones that stick out here for you. Well, I, I picture young Maddie, you know, dancing in his room to yeah. Fresh Prince singing a certain line from a song. You've got, you've got the body and I've got the brains, Maddie. I, I, were you dancing to that, Maddie? I could just see it. I was, Mike. <laughs> I was. You know me too well. <laughs> so that's definitely one of my favorite lines. Hey, Grady, do you remember your dreams? Only the wet ones. <laughs> that's a classic. How, how could, that's a great line. Now, oh again, David God. Chaskin, he did He did write some ringers here. He you did. can't say that, you know, there's... And, Mike, although it's the most illogical thing ever, when Robert England and they had that low-angle shot and he's, he's got his hands yes. in the air like Jesus preaching, you know, and he's like, you are old my children now <laughs> it's fantastic and i think robert england actually wrote that line I he did he improvised oh that's it. right they talk about that in the documentary right i believe so yeah Yeah, i think i remember that yep mm -hmm. um so those are some of my favorite lines memorable scenes mike yeah the obvious you know grady death kill yeah but mike oh. what about what about after grady's death mike jesse shows up at lisa's house oh full God. of blood yes and instead of offering to like clean him up or take a shower, or she sits him on the couch. Yeah, it's uh, to, to read from Nancy's diary. You know what? Come here, come here, Jesse. You're disgusting and you're full of blood. Let's read Nancy's diary together on my mom's nice freaking couch. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Ah, uh, that dancing scene, like you said. Yes. Uh, how can that not be memorable? It's so memorable, you know. It's so memorable. It's great. Thrusting and butting up against things and. I'll even add one of one of my yeah. It's so great. Oh my gosh! No, one of my favorite scenes is when when Grady and Jesse have their sort of bonding moment when they're doing push-ups outside. Push-ups, yeah. Um, I love little scenes like that. Those are the ones Again, that a John lot of Hughes people. Scenes, right? Mike? Yeah, I just love that. That's like what makes a story great, you know. To me, is like all those little scenes that that you sort of relate to, and that's definitely one of my favorites, you know. Now, that's that's great. Let's mm -hmm. go on to talk about the ending and the ending comparison here. Sure. So the ending from the original, I know a lot of people say it's probably the only aspect that, that people frown down upon. It's like, well, yes. so, so what does this movie do? It does nearly this. It does the same thing almost, right? It does. I'd but, argue they did it the better. I, I, I agree with you. We, like, yeah. We've spent an entire episode talking about how different Freddy's Dead is from the first I mean, Freddy's Dead. Freddy's Revenge is from the, from yes. the first film. Mm -hmm. And the one thing it decides to steal is the weak ending? Hold on, what? <laughs> That's the one thing it decides to steal. You know what? We, we're, we're going to break away in every other way. But with the ending, yeah, we're going to keep that. The worst part of the first film, <laughs> the only weak part of the first movie, we're going to take that and we're going to end it. <laughs> but the funny thing is, Mike, that the ending, I believe, I agree with you, man, totally. Yeah. It works much better in this film it than does. the original. It does, yeah. The tone is everything. And the original throws in a jump scare 
yeah, it's jarring, but it's just that, right? It's this cheap retread of like Phantasm's ending. You ever see Phantasm, the ending of Phantasm? Yes, yeah. He's looking in the mirror, right? Mm-hmm. But here, that but in the original, there's no reason for it to be there. There really isn't. Right. In, in Freddy's Revenge, it's it's already a narrative anomaly. Like it makes no sense, right? Yeah. So when the ending hits, it's like, and Freddy pops out a carrier, like, oh, it fits perfectly. And it's like really snugly there. And it's cool. Yeah. Like you said, the effect is great. It's like, why not? And it's, you know? it's almost like a bookend scene to the beginning because they're in the bus yes. at the beginning. And that's why I really liked it because it was like, oh, you know, we're back on the bus. You know, is this really happening? And or everything's is it not happening? fine. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I was doing in Nightmare on Elm Street is uh, I was revealing who I really was. And I think that came clearly through the, the screen. So, Mike, now we're going to talk about the legacy of this film, right? Um, it's definitely, well, to me, I'm speaking for myself. I don't speak for other people. It's the most singularly unique film in the franchise. That said, I don't know, you know, if fans appreciate it as much as I do. And certainly I, mm. when I saw it really makes a lot of difference because I did see this early on when I was younger and it was impressionable. Like I said before, it, it really does stick with you. Uh, as a flashpoint of gay representation in film, however, Mike, and all yes. the homosexual subtext made manifest, I think along with the Scream Queen doc, I think the, the film inspired people, not only in the, you know, the LGBTQ community and yes. the rest of us, you know, who want to be informed and in on the conversation. I, I think they'll be talking about this movie for a long time to come. Absolutely. So I think its legacy is assured. I really think it's, it can only grow from here, really. Well, think about it. This is like one of the only – there's not many horror films where there's a documentary made just about one film in a, in a right. series. So just that alone tells you that this film, whether you like it or not, is making a stamp uh, on something. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's standing right. out, you know? And almost in spite of David Chaskin's vision, I think, mm -hmm. right? It's almost like in spite of that. Yeah. It's not to support it because, like I said, I think – and I'm almost glad because, I, I mean, David, there's no way anyone could know when, when you make something, you know, how it's going to last or, or what's going to stick, right? But right. For, the, for the reasons why this one's going to have a legacy and for, and for Mark Patton and him bringing all this to light and about his own struggles and stuff, I think, I think it's a beautiful end to the story. I really do. Yeah. No, I agree. I think there's something almost poetic about it. And, you know, hey – even Robert England, Mike, who, you know, around this time, I think he was very much uh, on Wes's side with a lot of this stuff. Right. But he, he famously came, you know, wasn't a fan of this movie as much. Mm -hmm. um, he even has come around. Like last month, uh, I think maybe even it was May maybe, he was interviewed by uh, 2fab.com, this like website. And, and he says he thinks Freddy Revenge is now, it's ripe for a remake. That was his words. Really? Yeah, since today. He said, well, he, the reason he contextually said because kids are now more open to diversity and sexuality that, mm -hmm. that Robert, you know, he thinks some writer could actually do a modern take on. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, that would be interesting actually. And I think so, the legacy okay. alone, Matt, of, of the fact that our hero is a girl is pretty, pretty awesome, you know? And I think that sort of set up, uh, set up some other films that may have sort of switched, yeah. switched over like, Hey, let's make, you know, females need to take the stand here, you know? And, yeah, and in, in 85, that never happened. No, no. So I think that's that's pretty legendary as well, you know, that goes with the legacy. Yeah, man. It's all good things, like for the LGBTQ community, for women. I mean, but I think this, I think 
Robert England's on to something again. Like he's, in te- I, I think he has his finger on the pulse. Yeah. Like today with all of the people that are, that are woke, as they say now, you know, that are just kind of more aware of what's going on and of sexuality and, and art and stuff. And I, I just think they could, they possibly could. I yeah. Mean, again, I could it see wouldn't that. tarnish anything that was done here. This movie is this movie. And I, like I said, I hope it has a super long legacy and I hope people watch it like, like some of gay kids did back in the eighties and said, Oh damn, you know, I, I feel comfortable now. Like it, right. it helped me come out. Like, I think that's fantastic. So, Ultimately, Mike, what's the verdict? Is this film, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, is it the best sequel in the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise? I think a lot of people, you know, would argue no, um, based on the track record of, you know, uh, just even just going by what I feel, you know, like Nightmare 3 is one of my favorites. Um, But I I do, you know, some of the aspects, if you sort of weigh what we've argued here, uh, there's been a lot, of, a lot of more positives for me where I've sort of agreed that they did a better job than some of the other films, you know? Uh, you could yeah. definitely argue, you know, once you get past part four, you know, like part five, uh, I would say it's way better. Uh, part two is way better than part five. Oh my God. Um, like did not even close. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty ridiculous, but you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, part one is, is part one and part three, you'd have to admit are two totally different movies, you know, uh, part two almost stands on its own for me as, it does. A, as, as a separate film, you know, it's, it's very different. Um, so it's, it's a tough argument, you know, and that, I think that's the, the whole point of this podcast, but w- what are your feelings? Well, it's, as I said before, uh, it is, it's my sentimental favorite. It really is. Yeah. Um, your, as far as the sequel, saw, right. As yeah. Cause be, because of context and when I saw it and when I see, when you see something, it, it's too much of an impact. It's yes. too impactful and you can't just pretend that none of that matters and that, that doesn't, it does matter. That that's like everything. It's, it's all the emotion. It's all the memories that, that you carry along with that. And you just can't replace that and just, you know, it's not a mathematical thing where you can just, Oh, that's that. No, right. it's not like right. you can't account for that and how long that sticks with you. And you know, when, how often it comes into your mind or what reminds things around that remind you of that or seeing that where you were. And it's just too many factors. And yeah. so it's my sentimental favorite. I don't know that it's the, I don't think that it's the best nightmare on the street sequel. Right. Um, because again, the Jaws principle comes into play, Mike, and I think it's interesting because I think it, here, you know, with the case of Jaws, you know, the screwy mechanics of Bruce, the shark forced Spielberg to show the shark less, and it, I mean, it's perfect. It worked wonders for that film. Yeah. But it blows up here, like in, in the filmmakers' faces, because the bitter irony is that Freddie, although not seen as much in this film somehow, less, mm-hmm. some, somehow we, we end up seeing too much of him, don't we? His mystique yeah. is gone. Right. His power, again, his power as a person that comes to your dreams that you can't control. Now he, now he's in the real world. So actually you can yes. face him head on and, yes. and the way you want on your terms, not his. Right. Um, and that's in the writing and that's what eventually and ultimately doesn't completely work about this movie. Yeah. Um, so in the case of what these filmmakers eventually became, these films eventually became, I think more Freddie equals more fun, which right. is what happened eventually. Yes. But I, as I said earlier, fun doesn't really describe this film, but no, it's my sentimental favorite sequel, but yeah. it's not, I don't think it's the best one. Right, right. I, I would agree. I, I, would yeah, agree I still think – I'm still going to lean Dream Warriors slightly. Um, yes. Though I've had a much, much uh, renewed appreciation for four uh, as time has gone on. Yeah, absolutely. I really, I really enjoy the Dream Master a lot. Yeah, yeah. four is fun, you know, but three definitely for me is uh, – it would probably be my favorite sequel. 
without a doubt, you know. So we'd love to hear from you guys, though. You know, let us know how you feel. You know, some people might hate two with a passion or some people might say, hey, you know what? I actually like two better than three. Who knows? You know, who knows? No, what? listen. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it, 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 I'm trying not to cop out like this is my no, sentimental that's favorite, the, but that's I, the point I think of this. three is the best sequel. And it's a good here's the thing. It's a it's a it's a really good film. It it's is. well made. It's still scary, Freddy, which is. I love and I Dark, miss terribly. Yeah, yeah, and it had the balls to try something different and have a life of its own on its own terms. Um, you know, climbing out of that immensely influential shadow of that original. I don't know how you you do that, um, but but they you know, got to give them. They they had balls, man. They did it. They took a chance. Um, you know, all these things add up to an excellent, excellent experience too. If you, I mean, if you haven't seen it in a while, you should revisit it uh, on occasion. I'm, I'm, I'm personally so thankful and glad that this film exists for the reasons of I think it's great and it gives a different perspective. I think the kids that are finding this and finding themselves because of it, I think that's you can't ask for anything more from a piece of film and art than that. Well, this is fun. We came, yeah, man, we had a nice, uh, a nice, rich discussion. I think we went way deeper uh, you know, like i said we talked about stuff that that is said in the in the scream queen doc and mm-hmm. certainly in, in never sleep again the documentary yes but we but i think we kind of lent our own you know from our own experience and you know added some some cred of our own and in, our own insights in here so hopefully you found this enjoyable yeah and we got a we got a couple podcasts lined up right maddie we're ready to kind of rip them back out again at you guys so look forward yeah to i those. think by october we'll be deep into the into the higher 50s for sure by then yeah almost nearing 60 I'm, yeah I'm, I'm which feeling. would be good so we got some exciting ones some some ones that we're we've used that we do kind of um multiple times we're bringing back so look forward to that um and uh, maybe a class of coming up, right? Which is kind of yeah. A we have. Hint. We've had to, I'd say we have the next five or so, at least, or six, maybe mapped out at least comfortably. Yes, and with you know accompanying Patreon episodes, whether they're companion pieces or not, we definitely right. have those. And you know, like I said, we have our. We're gonna right after this, we're getting right to our our top three horror movie posters. So right now, baby, let's yeah, go. Yeah, we're gonna do it. So meet uh, us over there or not. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you if you don't want to join us on Patreon. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but anyway, Matt, you going to leave us with something? So if you find yourself alone in the dark, get on that school bus. It's coming. It's pulling up right now. It's parked outside your house. Don't worry about what the driver looks like. Don't worry about that. Just get on. It's okay. It's going to take you right where you need to go. Okay. And if it doesn't work out, and just take Mark Patton's lead and just start screaming. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for listening, guys. All right, take care, everybody.